0: Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds, even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Finer, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion.
1: Today I'm talking with Waya and hearing his perspective as a white man interacting with BIPOC people at the Ferry Creek Blockade. I is bravely willing to touch his painful feelings and to explore the guilt and fear from being called a racist. This episode adds depth and insight about the complexity of healing the racial divide.
0: It was really amazing to witness, like just personally, the evolution of the blockade because it transitioned a lot. And... I first went in the first week of July and I was back and forth for about two months. And then I was full-time at the blockade um, for half of the month of September and all of October. And in that period of time, we went from this beautiful, serene community to an active blockade where like for a few weeks, people were isolated up at River Camp, um, seven and a half to eight kilometers up the logging road. And we had to hike in through a a route going in through the back. And it took like six hours to get there, taking in a ton of food in like intense heat, hiding from helicopters, and then staying up all night, digging trenches and building structures. And it was so incredible to witness the... Resilience and the creativity and the passion of everybody involved, Um, but also really disheartening to watch it all transition and to see like all of these incredible people just become exhausted shells. Like, that's something that I noticed at the blockade really consistently is that people would show up wanting to change the world and they would leave feeling exhausted and debilitated. Um, Mental health was something, yeah, incredibly burnt (laughs) out. Mental health was something that was very commonly overlooked at the blockade that I witnessed firsthand, people literally just losing their identities and forgetting who they were. And in some cases actually um, going kind of insane and needing major help to recover. It's like there, there is so much beauty that took place <laughs> at the blockade, but a lot of oversight and a lot of like, sort of almost using human life As a resource to sustain the blockade as like a primary source of energy almost like a battery and i don't think that was intentional it was simply because there was so much conversation and and just like conflict within people at the blockade itself i think a lot of it was intentional there were definitely people there who were intentionally influencing the conversation either from the perspective of rcmp or from the loggers or just Mm. people who didn't agree with what the blockade was doing that's the case with almost every movement but At the same time, like there was so much confusion and so many people with different perspectives and ideas and intentions at the blockade that cohesive conversation was almost impossible and people would just get burnt out and exhausted as a result. We did incredible things, but it could have been so much, so much more impactful and intentional
1: I wonder how much, you know, burnt out is a result of the difficulty in front of police and how much is from not being united and have those conversations that doesn't get to any resolution. And, you know, what's the percentage of that?
0: Yeah, a lack of resolution, also a lot of repetition and overlap. Like, for example, when the injunction was renewed, um, we had stabilized a camp at what, what used to be intake, Or roadside. We'd stabilized a camp, we were starting to build and develop systems. And then the injunction was renewed. And there was a lot of fear going through the camp that cops would show up the next day, there was no, I guess, there's no information pointing to that as being likely. There was no proof, but there was just this fear and concern. Like everybody was on edge after enforcement started and it just continued to ramp up to the point where people basically just had pre-TSD anticipating pain and conflict and everybody was super exhausted. So it was really hard to have like fully rational conversations. You'd have people who were down at the front line starting to organize things and figure things out. And then people would come down from higher up the mountain and have all of these different ideas and intentions. There was a lot of frustration because supplies weren't being distributed as efficiently as they could. Like, for example, we had the, the camp set up at Roadside. And overnight it was dismantled and raided by people at the blockade and everything was sent to another area because we were afraid that the cops were going to show up. So for the next week, we had none of the supplies we needed. People were sleeping in the rain. We had a shortage of food. There was a shortage of water because everything was in totes in a completely different location from this like anticipatory fear and the desire to adapt on the last day when I got so burnt out to the point that I ended up leaving, um, I woke up early and helped to to make some food for people which didn't end up getting eaten um, because the, the RCMP showed up and people started freaking out. We had a couple of hours to move everything and people were dragging totes full of like dry chickpeas into the woods. And I was at a point where I was like, this is 60 pounds. There's one person who weighs like 110 pounds dragging this tote of food that nobody's going to be able to eat because it's dry chickpeas. <laughs> There's nothing that you can use to cook that in the woods. This yeah. makes no sense. Um, yeah. Wow. Lots of confusion, lots of internal confusion, which is understandable. It's an active blockade, and people showing up from all across Canada to support without any experience in the area. Um, hard to have secure communication lines and channels, especially when there are, like, in the signal group, there were probably over 800 people actively participating in conversation. It's almost impossible to navigate that. And when the majority of those people aren't even on site, but are sending in recommendations and donations was a huge issue, we would have so much stuff coming into the blockade constantly. And it just ended up accumulating to the point where we said, we can't take anymore. Like we literally cannot take anymore. We have to get rid of 90% of this. People were bringing in like flotation devices and like, what? literally just using the blockade, I think, as a place to deposit things they didn't want. Like, there's a lot of useful stuff, but who needs sandals in the middle of winter? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: Well, would you do different this time? Like, if would you, <laughs> and would you, and would you do it next time?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, when I first went to the blockade, I had no idea what to expect. My plan was to stay there for four days. I ended up staying for two weeks. And over the course of the next four months, I spent 80% of my time either at the blockade or traveling to and from the blockade. I ended up getting really involved and really engaged. And when I start interacting with different movements and systems by default, I sort of trend toward a, a, a position of influence. And I tried to minimize that as much as possible, the blockade. Um, I just felt like I didn't know enough, but I also wanted to help iron out wrinkles. I think if I were to do it again, I would take more time to better understand what's going on, and I would actually have conversations with the people who are really involved. Um, This is something that I've, I've talked about a few times, but being who I am, I ended up having a lot of conversations with the people who sort of responded to and reacted to my presence the most positively. And so I didn't have a lot of conversations with the um, indigenous leaders of the the movement simply because like we didn't cross paths many times. And I didn't feel entirely comfortable doing that. Um, I trended toward having conversations with other white people. Um, And that whole sort of that tendency created a lot of disruption within the blockade at large. Like, I didn't focus on creating conflict or separation, but simply by me being there and being part of the non BIPOC demographic, I contributed to that sort of growing divide that uh, so many people have talked about.
1: So, what is so. this tendency? You you see you you could you recognize the in, indigenous leaders? Do you know not, who they are?
0: Not really. Not really. Yeah, when I got to the blockade, there was a lot of talk about it being a decentralized movement. That's not true. Um, like, there were two sort of conflicting narratives within the blockade. One was if you can get three people around you to agree with your idea, go ahead and do it because if you don't, no one else will. And the other was, please don't try and change anything until you have a really clear understanding of what's going on. So we had tons of people acting like they were in a leadership position, Mm -hmm. but not actually in a leadership position, like not actually knowing what was going on. And we had a lot of people who knew what was going on, um, just not really engaging. Or interacting with others, and there were a lot of sort of subgroups at the blockade that either had been there for a long time, or just friends who had shown up who had decided to take something on that were only communicating with each other. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really difficult.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> and there were multiple camps running when I first got there. We had the front line. There was peace camp, um, river, uh, waterfall and then several other locations along the way. And over the the few months leading up to when I got there, the blockade had really started to solidify as several communities that were actively participating in the blockade. There were several groups that had come together Um, and we're actively collaborating like friends or people who had just started to, to fall in with each other because they had similar perspectives. And then there were several different physical locations at the blockade and people were constantly traveling in between them. So it was really hard to identify who's in charge of what, what's going on. When I first got to the blockade, I didn't feel comfortable going up to the front line immediately because I had no idea what to expect. So I stayed mostly around headquarters and HQ. Yeah. Starting to interact a lot with people there. And the perspective of of HQ was we are the heart of this movement. Like we are distributing all resources. We are the active hub for communication. Without HQ, everything would have fallen. And HQ was also preventing access through the main road in uh, TFL 46. Um, but people up at Waterfall, for example, were like, we are the active frontline. We are the movement itself. Like we are leading this and there was a lot of tension and conflict between those two groups. And so it was really difficult to identify like who is really in charge of what, who can I talk to, to figure out what to do. Um, especially when 50% of people would say, do whatever you want, as long as you get consensus from a few people around you. So it was really easy for people to say, Oh, well, I have three of my friends that I came here with, and I want to build a new kitchen. So I'm going to talk to my three friends, they all agree. And then we're going to get yelled at for going and trying to build a new kitchen when that's exactly what we were told to do get consensus. Um, And the other was don't do anything until you have like, just consensus from somebody who's in charge or confirmation from several people who have been here for a really long time. Um, It's very difficult, very difficult to identify who to talk to.
1: Lots of of confusion. For sure. Okay, and, and you said before that when you do go and talk with people, you tend to gravitate toward white people that it's more comfortable for you. And I wonder, why is that? What happened when... What happened to you when you look at the native leaders or the native people around, around you and you feel resistance to talk with them? It's, they're not looking at you. They're not interested in, in communicating with you. Is it something that they do that makes this kind of resistance and, and difficulty? What is it?
0: Yeah. I noticed in myself, the blockade has been an incredible place to heal from a lot of a lot of the perspectives that I have carried for a very long time. And one primary one was unresolved guilt, Um, unresolved guilt and unresolved shame. Um, The narrative that I've been exposed to for a very long time. I grew up in a very rural part of British Columbia, where there was a lot of racism and hatred. And I ended up moving to Calgary when I was really young. And I was exposed to a really diverse demographic of people. but the, the predominant narrative in Alberta, especially toward indigenous people is one of racism and like sort of like passive aggressive tolerance to the presence of indigenous people, like the it's, it's tolerance. And it's really sad to see that and to feel that. And I felt active tension and resistance being around that and also kind of despising myself because the narratives that were at play started to sink into my perspective. Um, but when I went to Fairy Creek, I, I I noticed and realized, and I, I have um, indigenous roots, like very distant, but um, nothing that shows up in my, my complexion or how I communicate. And I, I never want to lean into that as a way to say like, oh, I have like an understanding or, or perspective. I'm just so disconnected from my indigenous roots that like it's it's just it's terrifying to, to sort of see, or it was when I went to Fairy Creek. And when I came across BIPOC people, I just felt this this guilt and shame and almost like I had actively contributed myself to the oppression of, of people. And I recognize simply by benefiting from the systems that we live in, I am because there is systemic racism. There is mm-hmm. systemic indifference. And by observing the systems that we participate in and, and being a white male who can communicate relatively well, um, I have decent posture and I show up in an environment and I take up space simply by existing. I'm benefiting from the systems that, that we have in North America. Um, and so as a result, I, I would sort of tell myself subconsciously, like, I am actively causing racism and oppression even though i didn't really feel like i was like i'm not going out of my way and being racist but i I, like everybody carries sort of racially motivated or fueled perspectives and beliefs and i had picked up so many um over the course of my life that fairy creek has helped me to to let go of them but when i would come across a bipoc person at fairy creek i just had no idea how to communicate Um, and being there I, i started to realize like we are all just people. Like, I just need to talk to other people compassionately and openly and be willing to be wrong and be willing to be criticized and open to that. Um, and in some cases, almost seek it. Because if I'm not expressing myself and if I'm not exposing my, my misguided beliefs or perspectives, they're not going to be called out. I'm going to carry those with me for the rest of my life without recognizing that they're there um so i had to start being vulnerable but it's it's really difficult and it's painful As human beings we're wired to be liked we want to seek to to be liked by people and if somebody calls you out and says dude you're being fucking racist right now it's like oh my god like that hurts so much and the immediate response is to try and backlash and to react but yeah it's uh
1: Waya, oh, yeah. thank you so much for being so open and talking about the guilt. I think this is the core of the problem of the of the divide, of the difficulty to connect and to to heal that. It's it's the core. So, talking about it, bringing it up here and being willing to explore that that's that's been, that, that's a present. Give me a few examples of thoughts and perspective you had before you came to the blockade and then you realized you had for everyone that listens to that?
0: Yeah, this is, honestly, this is really difficult to talk about. Um, I internalized a lot of, I wouldn't say necessarily superiority, Mm -hmm. but just a constant questioning. The world that we live in today is very much designed from the foundations that some people are worthy of life and other people are less worthy of life. And BIPOC people and people um, of like sort of minority groups and people who uh, with different gender identifications that aren't recognized within the binary systems that we have accustomed ourselves to are often seen as sort of less than um, just by way? default.
1: In what way? How do you see that? Do you give them less food?
0: Like what? What <laughs> No, totally not. Like like for me personally, I, I seek to treat everybody as an equal.
1: Blah 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 blah. As, but what are you yeah. in the blockade. What's <laughs> happening?
0: <laughs> okay. There is just a misunderstanding. A lack of communication and a lack of understanding. No, no, no. I, I need to A lack of understanding now. perspective. Okay. Wait, okay. You're so, gonna have to ask more specific questions.
1: Okay so there is the book my grandma's hands and he's sharing their situation that white people believed that black people has thicker skin just because in older generation people that worked in the cotton field their skin became so thick and from that they came to believe that if you beat a black man they can endure it better because their skin is thicker and because maybe they're stronger And those kind of beliefs we have and those kind of thoughts we have are usually unconscious, but we don't notice them until we speak them out loud, until we say, we say that and then we realize, wow, that's true. I was thinking that thought. I didn't realize that I'm thinking that and I'm acting upon those thoughts, but it's actually what's happening to me. And you know, you are such an amazing communicator and you're such an amazing speaker and you have so much (laughs) self-confidence. And you still face this challenge. And I think if you face it, everybody else face it. So going through, exploring those thoughts and what exactly is happening, breaking it down will help other people to recognize the same thing in themselves. And that could be very beneficial.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think there, there's, a, there's an active fear that I was carrying at the blockade that I still have. Okay. that I would come off as racist. That if mm-hmm. I come up and have conversation, I will say something that's wrong or I will say something that's triggering and I don't want to be that person. I don't want somebody mm-hmm. to call me out and say that I'm racist because that's not my intention. There's also a lot of anxiety and anticipation.
1: So so, so like, it, it's amazing yeah. because by thinking that you might be called out as a racist, you are doing that division. Yeah creating the division without wanting that, without Mm. wanting to. And from one hand, you said, I do want people to criticize me so I can wake up from this, but it's so hard. So preventing this pain. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. This is how we contribute to this cycle. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say second to that as well, just not being entirely sure how to interact with people. Like there, there was a sense that I had for, quite a while, this, this started to build up during the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, There was a trend that was going around where people would pick up their phone and they would record themselves and say, I am racist. And they would talk about all of their perspectives and beliefs and how they were actively avoiding recognizing this over the course of their lives. And I thought about this quite a bit myself and was like, wow, like I, I totally am. Like I carry all of these perspectives and beliefs and simply, I, I, I would say, From my perspective now what i was doing at the blockade the act of intentionally avoiding engaging and interacting with somebody who has a different Mm -hmm. perspective belief cultural background ideology or skin color than yourself out of the fear of not knowing how to interact or sort of be in that space with them i would say that is an act of racism you're actively avoiding, recognizing, acknowledging and being present with an individual because of the color of their skin, because it's bringing you discomfort. And that is one of the ways that I was actively contributing to racist tendencies within our society. Um, Being at the blockade, I really started to explore that discomfort. And you're right, like calling out that, that contrast and that almost paradox within me of like, avoiding having those conversations but wanting to be in that state so that it could be called out so it could be recognized um it's a very uncomfortable place to be as a human being Um, especially when you don't know how to interact with somebody like do you do do i go up um and this this is a question to to me like six months ago do i go up and do i say i am so sorry for the oppression that people of color have experienced over the course of do I show up at the blockade and have a conversation with a black person or with an indigenous person and say, I'm so sorry for the like f- hundreds of years of oppression that your people have experienced? Or is that completely just out of sorts and inappropriate to say in that moment? It's like, do, do I have a conversation with somebody who identifies as transgender and say, I'm so sorry for the pain that like people who look like me have placed on you? I'm so sorry for the the lack of understanding for the lack of communication. Like I want to actively contribute to healing, but is calling that out a problem in itself? Should I just be around this person and act like they're not different than I am? Like what, what is the approach that we take? This isn't something that's, that's talked about in society. It isn't something that is shared in the education system. It isn't a conversation that I've heard happen around dinner tables. Um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I have quite a few friends, for example, who have come out as transgender in the last couple of years and have um, uh, gone through uh, hormonal, hormonal uh, treatment therapy and um, have had surgeries and I've had conversations with them and like looking at my life personally, it's so strange because On one hand, I recognize that I'm actively contributing to oppression simply by being who I am, and I feel guilt because of that. And on the other hand, I am actively reaching out and trying to call out my own limitations and perspectives and beliefs and ideologies that I'm holding and carrying and accidentally perpetuating simply because I haven't recognized them. Um, But I'm also super afraid of like taking the wrong step or overreaching or making a mistake and stumbling and one being called out. And I think the foundation of this is hurting somebody, actively hurting somebody and reinforcing this cycle of oppression. And that's something that happened a lot at the blockade. There was a lot of like everybody showed up with good intentions for the most part. But there were people who were accidentally overstepping and this is one of the major conflicts that happened between one of the bipoc groups and several primarily white individuals um, working in the the social media space there was fear and anger and hatred coming from the bipoc people which is completely understandable because like in that position they have descended from Many generations that have been oppressed, have had their culture, their language, their history and belief systems stolen from them and replaced with something that feels so strange and unfamiliar and, and fake. Um, people are trying to take back their power. I respect that so much. Um, but the, the, the expression of that anger and fear I feel in many cases was so misdirected and it resulted in at the blockade specifically relationships and the movement itself kind of being torn apart in the way that it, that it was put together, um, which might end up being beneficial long-term because the blockade is now transitioning into being truly indigenous led and, Mm -hmm. um, potentially invitation only, where people who actually build relationship and are actually trustworthy contribute to the blockade. The downside of that is like Wet'suwet'en, it might end up being forgotten by the general public, because when you have a large group of white people that are being sprayed in the face with pepper spray by RCMP, that goes viral. Whereas unfortunately, things that have happened at Wet'suwet'en, where like indigenous people are being dragged across the ground by their legs... The way that our society is constructed, it just doesn't spread as quickly or it doesn't garner the intention that a couple of white people would, which is like really devastating and frustrating to observe. Um, It just seems to be the the case with the the current structure that we have. Um,
1: So the RCMP were more violent with uh, what's written?
0: There is a lot of aggression at Wet'suwet'en that hasn't necessarily taken place at Ferry Creek, but I would say overall, um, there has been more, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to contrast the two, because the white demographic at Wet'suwet'en is a lot lower, so it's harder to recognize, like, mm-hmm. At Ferry Creek, we had specific examples where there would be a large group of white people surrounding BIPOC people, and the RCMP would push aside the white individuals and grab the BIPOC people. There are so many videos of that happening. At Wet'suwet'en, there just isn't a, a population sample to sort of observe that within. Um, It's majority Indigenous people, and their approach is completely different, where they say, like, if you have anything you want to bring up, if you have any questions, this is exactly what's happening. You're stepping onto our territory. You're going against the regulations set by UNDRIP. You are going against the regulations set by Canada. We have the right to protect our territory. You are not allowed here. If you have any questions, you can contact our, our communications team. Whereas at Ferry Creek, it's direct engagement with RCPN yeah. loggers. It's face-to-face people saying, you're not coming past, and if you want to get past us, you have to move our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare the two, and I, I apologize for doing that. Um, but it, it feels like Ferry Creek is transitioning more into that. Yeah. I also feel like I'm going off on so many different tangents. So sorry if it's difficult to keep track. there's so much to unpack
1: yeah no worries that's great let's rephrase what you said you said many beautiful things okay so you said you're feeling racist when you're in the blockade realizing all the thoughts you have like racist thoughts you feel guilty personally for having those thoughts and you're feeling guilty Um, and feeling racist by contributing the divide for not engaging and avoiding difficult conversation and at the same time aware that this is what you wanna do and need to do. And from the other hand, there's the BIPOC people that don't make their life easy for for you and other white uh, folks that are around and they need to gain their power back and definitely understandable, but on the way also belittling you And we have this cycle here kind of, this is what I, I hear there is a cycle of, I want to connect, but there's like blockages on the way and it's very hard to connect from the guilt I feel, from the guilt in being posed on you. And, and, and you know, why do we have guilt in first place? Like why we have this emotion? What is it coming to teach us? And I think. At least most of us believe that if we feel guilty, we will do better. We will do better next time. We will know that we made a mistake, and it will improve our actions. And I think the question is, is it doing that? Is it, if it's doing that, so great. Feeling guilty is the right way to do you know? But if it's not doing that... But if it's not doing that, so what does it do? How does it feel to feel guilty in a situation when you wish to connect, when you wish to engage, when you want to express how much you care and the guilt actually prevent you from doing that. And the other point you mentioned and also Driftwood was talking about that too, that if who I am, Is imposing more damage eventually I will disengage eventually I don't want to create any harm to other people so I will back off and is it really what we want to create because this is division this is not unity this is like so it's a question it's 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 a very important question I have no answer for that but it's that's the result that will happen if we will feel so guilty and by being who we are, we create more, more harm, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Another way to look at it uh, that comes to mind is what's the goal? What is our goal? Is our goal is not to cause any harm by evoking discomfort emotions and that lead us to avoidance and creating division by avoiding? Or the goal is to find a way to work through differences? And that also goes through the discomfort. And in a a podcast, really good one that I love, the Life School Podcast, and I'll add the link in the description, she's talking there about pain now or pain later. And there is always pain in life. We can't run away from the pain. We can't run away from the discomfort, but we can choose which one we want to engage. And this is very powerful for me very profound to to remember that I can engage right now with the difficult conversation and face this discomfort or the other choice that I can face avoidance and division and self-isolation because I didn't engage in that. So it's not that it's going to be easy either way. It's going to be difficult as a way, but which one you want to choose?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable observation that um, you mentioned. Like the, the tendency around discomfort and just not knowing how to approach conversation usually leads to avoidance, and like that by by default, it's sustaining the systems that we have because it's avoiding putting them into question. It's avoiding like the opportunity to recognize the differences that people have or the similarities and and commonalities that people share and then being able to say like the system that we're within doesn't accurately represent who you are or who i am and it doesn't really allow us to interact with each other as we want to or as we could so we should work together to change it um and over the course of my life that that has been a consistent barrier it's like the fear of coming off as insulting or belittling or just completely unaware of the experience that somebody else is having. Even like you said, with, with a family member who, who has had somebody close to them die. It's like, how do you approach that conversation in a way that will be accepted, understood, and then reciprocated by the other person? It's so much easier to avoid approaching that to begin with, but so much more damaging long-term. And it really takes courage to sort of... To, to bypass or to just step through that and to approach conversation. But uh, yeah, Fairy Creek has helped a lot with that, but I still have so much work to do. So much work to do.
1: You know, in my research about uh, hot topics, conversations and difficult conversation, I realized I cannot avoid conversation anymore. Because when I'm avoiding conversation, I already... It's a decision by itself to say, I don't want to talk with this person. So I'm doing the divide already, this, the avoidance. And so I started to, to be more humble and say things like, I don't know what to say. Like I asked Marmar, um, tell me about this gender thing. You mentioned sterile ties. No, I don't know what is it, right? And I started to say more and more about, I just don't know. Somebody died in my family. Um, it's somebody's, like, my grandma just died. And and I was thinking, what should I say to my uncle? And what should I say to his kids? And I'm not there. I'm in Canada. And should I say, I'm sorry that I'm here? Or, like, I'm sorry in their loss. I'm sorry about our loss. Like, how to say that? And then I decided it doesn't matter. I will, uh, it's better to to stumble, to fail, instead of not saying anything. and. And that's, you know, my, my approach today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that's so difficult?
1: I think you said it, it's the, it's to be pointed at as you did something wrong. And I think when we grow up, we, being wrong is like death. Mm. We want to make our parents pleased. Uh, we we need to be loved and to be loved is life then they will protect us because we are so helpless Mm. and Mm. if we didn't overcome this step to be our own adults and to know that I can provide myself and I can support myself emotionally mainly Mm -hmm. and most of us didn't because no, it, it's not something we don't learn at school how to deal with our emotions, right? Like it's something that it's so hard for most people. This is why we get so reactive and avoiding avoidance is, is is, is when we are avoid, we can know about ourselves that we don't have good coping mechanism for for emotional discomfort, and eventually mm-hmm. we're talking about emotions, not nothing about reality. Emotional discomfort, that's what it is, and if we frame it like this. Really, that's it. But yes, that's it. Like being wrong, that's it. What is to do a mistake? It's it feels so bad. It feels like burning in your belly. And but that's mm. it. That's what it is. I think it's come comes down to to two options. The first option that most of us do is to avoid. And then now we know that it contributes to the divide. It contributes. It contributes to feeling apart, feeling disconnected from people that we love, people that we want to to work with and to, to care for. The other option is to engage. And then we have to face the risk. We might not know what to say. We might trigger them. It might not be the right thing to say. But if we have the intention that we want to heal, we want to bond and we have to make relationships. So I believe that most of the time we will figure out how to do that because people see the intention, see the goodwill uh, behind the little mistakes that we didn't find the right words. And we can say, like, we can start with intention. Hey, I have intention to to connect with you and to get to know you, but I don't know how to start. Would you help me? You know, I don't know how to call you. Are you, is it? insulting to say native indigenous first nation what's the best way you want to call or just your name do you want me to talk about your past do you want me to acknowledge that or do you want to put it aside and each one of us is completely different we're different we can't assume that everyone will answer the same thing that all native people are the same we can't assume that it's not true we are not the same not each white person is the same right? So we have to ask that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in recognizing that, like the only options moving forward are like, you can avoid, you can continue to contribute to that divide. You can say like, all right, I'm, ju- I'm just, I'm just going to jump into the water head first and just say whatever. And if it comes off as insulting, at least I tried. Or you can take the path that you just, that you just clarified and say like, I don't know. So approach the conversation from a point of curiosity and and questioning in order to figure out like what terminology to use and what are the sensitive areas and how do you navigate those sensitive areas from that other person's perspective? Because it's their experience. It's not it's not mine to assume. And I think I've, I've been doing that personally for quite a long time. Like my education on indigenous people was so stunted in high school um and in in school in general i had aboriginal education and we we learned how to make moccasins out of like paper and we learned how to bead different different uh designs with different colored beads like it, it was so limited we had a couple of people come in who would talk about their experience as an indigenous person but they were talking to a group of like 12 year olds. So they're not going to talk about genocide. They're not going to talk about the, the history of oppression and the experience within residential schools. They're not going to talk about the cascading effects and impacts that has had on just the mental well-being and physical well-being of the descendants of people who came out of those systems. Um, so it, it really is up to individuals to seek um, education. And when I first started looking into all of the atrocities that have been committed to indigenous people and like with black people, it's far more apparent, but it's still so like undervalued in terms of it is such an impactful period in our history where we have dehumanized other human beings simply because of how they look and justified incredible torment and terrible actions off of that it's really uncomfortable to look at. Um, But like, we have to, we have to figure out how to navigate that for so many different reasons, just for the experience of life for individuals, but also the fact that we're in a climate emergency. Like we are not going to get through this until we can start cooperating with each other and interacting in a way where conflict is not an option. Like where we can have tension, where we can have, arguments but we cannot resolve issues by killing each other that cannot continue to happen like look at the way that the world is currently there are global superpowers that at the press of a button could guarantee the extinction of life on earth and a conversation that leads to two people saying "fuck you could end humanity that's that's unacceptable like we have so much potential yeah we have so much potential as a species we need to move in a direction where we can create a world where collaboration and compassion and beauty and creativity are default. Um, so like in my own life, that that comes from what you're saying, just recognizing that I don't know. And I can approach conversations by saying that and asking how to, how to work with people and how to communicate. Yeah, up until now, I, I have totally just been assuming and avoiding.
1: I think you're being too hard on yourself now. I think you're you did amazing, and just willing to be there and observe the discomfort and engage with it, and unpacking all those thoughts and doing this decolonization work that's that's a lot. So you're doing really good, yeah. And something else you mentioned that I want to to touch upon is the education piece that native and BIPOC people tell you go to educate yourself go go understand first the history and I think it's very very important and valuable that we will have the knowledge and that we understand what what they what they dealt with and how we've been lied to right like there's so much to unpack here but there's something that is missing and it's like really itchy for me is Is that when we do it ourselves in our own house, reading our own books, we are not really engaging with each other. We are not creating relationships. And I think at least what I understand, like the native way is to build relationship, build relationship with the land, build relationship protocols before you even come to the land and, and build relationship with each other. And, and for me. And this is really personally for me, but sharing my struggle to someone that cares and I look them in the eyes and I see how much they care and they can cry with me. And what can be possibly more healingful than that? You know, and if, if you take the, if you have this ability to, for for each one of us, but like for, I, th- I think again, like I'm not native and. I'm Jew, I have Holocaust, I have other, other issues, but you know, like I'm thinking that if I have this opportunity to share to share it to somebody that really cares, that asks questions, it's a opportunity for me to go through this process and reflecting and understand myself better because I'm talking about it with somebody asked question, like we're doing now, right? And also just think that the other person really understand me and really cares. And this is healing.
0: Yeah, 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 I I completely agree with that perspective. And around truth and reconciliation, I really love that reframing of that statement, because up until now, it feels like it's been a a huge buzzword um, within politics, especially lately, and hasn't actually been recognized as what it is. Reconciliation is the process of two people coming together and building relationship. And It's like it's necessary to recognize that truth is subjective. We all have our own experiences. We all have our own interpretations of the world. There is no like single truth that sort of can guide us forward. But we have to be willing to share our individual truths and to reconcile our differences, to build relationship and to come to a common understanding of of where we stand as individuals. And um, your observation on like the responsibility of Indigenous people to assist in the process of education, I think is really important to mention because that did not really exist at the Ferry Creek blockade in the, the places that it should have most. In the areas where there was direct conflict between BIPOC and non-BIPOC people, there was a lot of accusation and a lot of frustration. And I noticed this in particular in conversation between a group of BIPOC people and um, one of my close friends. And I, I focused on building friendship and relationship with everybody. And I stood in sort of a gray area, probably just because I didn't voice my opinion and perspective. And the few times that I did, I was very quickly shut down, um, specifically by BIPOC people. When the conflicts between these two groups started, there was a lot of request and asking for the acknowledgement and recognition of the things that the white people did that the BIPOC people felt were unacceptable and were wrong and hurtful. But then when those things were acknowledged and I recognized they were not acknowledged specifically because the only communication channels to acknowledge these things were like Signal where there were 800 plus people That like nobody is ever going to meet every single one of those individuals. So if you were to call out exactly what you did and what you said to a certain person, it can be taken completely out of context and you become a demon to hundreds of people that you'll never meet. And that news spreads so quickly. So to avoid self-ostracization, these people wrote apology letters and sent them out into the signal groups and were immediately shut down by the BIPOC people saying your apology isn't enough. We don't accept it. We want you to leave. You do not have the right to be here. You have to go away. It's simply like you make me uncomfortable to be around and I don't feel like I can communicate with you because you're not accepting me just essentially belittling you and berating you constantly every time we come across each other. There was a lack of communication from both sides and a lack of understanding where like it could have been resolved so easily if the two groups had just sat down and talked. And there were many moments where that would happen, but it was essentially one group saying, you did this. No, I didn't do that. You did this. Oh, I don't really see it that way. Um,
1: what would, so what did a, as they a, as ask a, to to be recognized? The past? That is all uh, the territory stuff like that?
0: No, no. Things that happened directly between individuals. So... Yeah. A lot of people have already mentioned there were there were several people that um have been accused of uh sexual assault and in conversation with a couple people who were accused i don't really like what are what are the lines of that like what what is what is the precise definition that we're working by and like i i never got specifics from any side i would ask questions to BIPOC people and they wouldn't give me specific answers on like what happened and i would ask the white people who were accused. And there were no specific answers or details. So I was really confused as an outsider. And I think most of the movement was because for a period of time, for probably like three weeks straight, um, there were essentially just there was one group that was attacking another group and a ton of people who were trying to intervene and trying to get an understanding of what was going on and were kicked out of the blockade as a result. Um, One example is a photographer from National Geographic who did a ton of work to bring awareness to the Fairy Creek blockade. And she ended up being accused for being, I think, racist because of a couple photos and things that she um, like messaged onto the signal chat. And that was not her intention. That was not her focus. But as a result, she was bullied nonstop for about a week straight and ended up leaving because she just couldn't continue to take the, the aggression that she was being faced with. And so many people were sort of hit with like the, the stray bullets, I guess, the accusations that were flying between these two groups. Um, and one of the major things that was was being said by the the bipod group was you need to educate yourself and there was no direction there was no assistance in that process there wasn't recommendation for like books and podcasts to listen to but there was a constant follow-up of like have you educated yourself have you educated yourself and if one thing was said wrong or interpreted wrong the assumption was made that this person wasn't taking it seriously and wasn't following through with their promise to educate themselves so it's like that that alone creates conflict and tension and where do you start? Do you start at like the, the beginning of human evolution because that is probably the point in which the differences between individuals began within our species. Um, and yeah, like there there was this is, there was a lot of I, conflict in I, I, I want to there. stop
1: here just to breathe because it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. It's so frustrating to to be in a situation when you really come with a good intention to do good. Yeah. And you feel so helpless. But maybe if, to to make it simple, white people came with good intention to help, felt not understood, not valued. BIPOC people feel everything is so triggering, everything is so emotional, everything you say is hurting, everything you say you don't understand, everything you say is racist, everything you say is overstepping, everything you say shows your privilege and and how you don't notice your privilege. So Mm -hmm. like with this photographer and with all the other examples, it's like everything, 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 and you don't find yourself around that. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty obvious if if we frame it like that, that each group has a lot of work to do. Yeah. they're on, if we want to work together we don't have to but i i think we we want to we want to work together mm-hmm. each group has to contribute while mm-hmm. reflecting on their side on what i can do better
0: yeah 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 that's we, that's have, diff- the we have different in... work to do yeah each of us <laughs> yeah. each of us individually and that's so uncomfortable but the beauty in that is that it's possible and it's amazing to experience, especially when we recognize and acknowledge that we are not alone in that work, that we're all doing it together. Like that can be a cultural and socioeconomic and political bridge to, to, to bridge that divide. Like we are not alone. And that's the assumption that's made in so many cases in the climate emergency the vast majority of people don't even pursue education to question how they can take action because the primary response that I've heard so many times is what can I do, I'm on my own. And that's that's the assumption that's made with everything. And I would say like that, that is sort of the, the one of the guiding narratives that has resulted in so much division globally is the fact that we think we're alone. We're not actually, it's just completely self-imposed, but it's really easy to believe and to believe consistently, and then to have that narrative drive the action that you take. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're not alone. We are in it together. And the people that is harder, is the most hard to talk with, are the ones that need this conversation and connection the most. And it's hard. It's very, very not comfortable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I hope so too. And a a quick aside, something that I'm going to take away from this is um, maybe even in conversation, in the like when I acknowledge the differences and the lack of understanding and the fact that I know nothing, say like, I'm seeking discomfort. I want for the things that I have carried for such a long time that are not relevant or are hurtful toward you or toward the world. I want that to be exposed. So, can we have this conversation? Can you help to guide me through the discomfort? And can you help me just better understand your perspective so that I know how to navigate this this conversation, this topic, the experiences that you have had. I have not had them personally. And like that that's going to be really really helpful moving forward cuz like even outside of conversations around race and perspective, and ideology, even just systems that I'm unfamiliar with, I have felt a very strong urge for most of my life to just sort of feign proficiency or pretend like I know what's going on. Like if someone says, oh, like you probably know how to do this, right? If I have no idea how to do it, I won't say yes, but I'll sort of just like slightly nod my head or like, if I shake my head, I'll go, "Mm mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Like, yeah. express hesitancy, but lean toward, yeah, of course I know how to do this, and then just try and catch up as I go along. That happened with pruning, the, the work that I'm doing now. I've never pruned a fig tree before in my life, but people reached out and they're like, hey, we have fig trees that we want. we want you to prune. So I would book them in, and then I would watch YouTube videos on pruning fig trees for hours and hours and hours. Unfortunately, it's worked out well, but oh, in more difficult conversations, that's really dangerous.
1: Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversation podcast. To hear the other side of this story, please listen to Marmar's episode. It, it breaks my heart
0: knowing that, and seeing and witnessing this firsthand, Indigenous people trying, fighting so hard to the point of tears to try and have their voices heard when they are continuously talked over by white people. It happens so much. Every circle that we would have, it's like some freaking white guy has his hand up and is telling them how they're wrong or how we should be doing this. For more white people perspective,
1: please listen to Driftwood episode.
0: Um, Well, there was a circle gathering. Grandma Losa was starting a circle and I had been working all day and I was on my way back to go do some work and I was talking to somebody and I have a really big voice and I try hard. Sometimes to be a smaller person than I am, like a smaller personality, because I can, I can be very loud, which is great if I'm your biggest fan, and um, not great when I need to be smaller. Um, yeah, and I was talking to somebody, and it was louder than I was aware of, and this person just came up to me and said, who are you to speak over Indigenous voices? You are not welcome on this land. You need to leave.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to listen, to reflect, to feel, and to heal. And don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing the heart, healing the divide, and healing the planet.